Thanks for tuning in for Access U Time. Tom Williams. Uh, first, a note from yesterday's program. You recall we talked with Jane Mayer about her book, Dark Money, the hidden history of the billionaires behind the rise of the radical right. We talked a lot about the Koch brothers and the fact that they and other uh, groups uh, use uh, a law which allows them to register their groups as charitable organizations. And uh, that in turn allows them to keep their donor roles secret. And I characterized that law um, in a way you'll see that And Steve emailed in and corrected me. He says, I believe the way the statute is actually written, these dark money charities are required to spend 100% of their expenditures on charity, not merely 51%, in order to keep their donor role secret. It's the IRS which has taken it upon itself to promulgate this pernicious 5149 test. Thanks for that uh, correction, Steve. Keep the comments coming on yesterday's show at upraxis at gmail.com. Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The West, especially the Intermountain States, ranks among the widest places in America. But this fact obscures the more complicated history of racial diversity in the region. In his new book, Making the White Man's West, Whiteness and the Creation of the American West, out from University Press of Colorado, Jason Pierce argues that since the time of the Louisiana Purchase, the American West has been a racially contested space. He says the West had the most diverse population in the nation, with substantial numbers of American Indians, Hispanics, and Asians. But Anglo-Americans were able to control these mostly disenfranchised peoples and enjoy the privileges of power while celebrating their presence as providing a unique regional character. From this came the belief in a white man's West, a place ideally suited for quote-unquote real Americans in the face of the changing world. We'll review the history and bring it forward to a discussion of today's issues and recent events, like immigration and the standoff in Oregon. Jason Pierce is Associate Professor of History at Angelo State University in San Angelo, Texas, and joins us now for the program. Thanks for joining us. Great. Uh, thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. I'd like to start with your this this gets complicated when you talk about race. You have you have a note on terminology. That's where I'd like to start to kind of illustrate this. Okay, um, yeah. Uh so uh you say that uh in say the 19th century uh people would use people like Teddy Roosevelt would use the the phrase Anglo-Saxon. Uh so maybe that's the starting point. What what were they trying to do there? They differentiate the the good northern European whites from the not as desirable southern and eastern whites? Absolutely. For a long time in American history, there was this kind of sense, that even amongst Europeans, that there were sort of racial differences, you know, that Anglo-Saxons were kind of the the pinnacle of, you know, of human evolution, you know, as were, you know, maybe the Germans. And then they had other, what they called, you know, what we might call ethnic groups, they actually thought of as racial groups. Uh, the Irish, for example, uh, you know, Southern Europeans, Eastern Europeans. And a lot of Americans really con- conceived of those peoples as being kind of less than 100% white. Um, and so, the you know, it's something that we've kind of forgotten about, I think, as a society today. But they really saw those ethnic differences as racial differences. And then, of course, then also saw the, the racial differences that we still have uh, today as well. So very different view. And then that morphed into Anglo-American. Some people use that term, and I think that especially became useful, quote-unquote, when differentiating um, white, so-called, this gets complicated, um, versus Hispanics. Right, yeah. And it got muddy at the time, and, and, you know, it's kind of remained so. For example, you know, nowadays the census includes Hispanics as whites, but then they'll break that out as non-Hispanic whites versus Hispanic whites. And even at the time, um, you know, Hispanics are brought in really in large numbers in the United States with the the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo at the end of the Mexican-American War. And that had stipulated that uh, the citizens of, of Mexico could actually be considered citizens of the United States, which at the time meant that they had to also be considered white because only white people could actually be citizens of the United States. Uh, and so they, they sort of claim that, you know, uh, Mexicans, uh, Mexican-Americans are white, even though there may be, you know, many of them had a high percentage of Indian blood or, or whatever. They still said, oh, they're, if, they're, if they're citizens, they're white. And so, but on the ground, people didn't really see it that way. You know, in Texas, there's a clear distinction between Anglo-Americans 
and uh, and Mexican Americans. Uh, that really, in some ways, even endures to this day. You, uh, I'll just quote you from the book. This is from your note on terminology. Using white and American interchangeably, as Toni Morrison and others have shown, makes everyone else invisible and makes white universal and ubiquitous, but also invisible. Yeah, I think that that's true. And that comes from her kind of study of whiteness and literary theory and things like that. But, uh, you know, it becomes sort of the formative, uh, you know, uh, way things are, you know, that this is the standard and everyone else is either invisible or somehow not the standard. Uh, And so, um, yeah, it's kind of uh, it's definitely something that still has great resonance, I think, in some ways today. Then you conclude this uh, segment of your book saying whiteness and the closely related concept of white supremacy proved tools more powerful than guns in the conquest of the West and the creation of the white man's uh, West. Let me, to to get into this, uh, you're talking about this, this, what came to be a a myth, which then people tried and were successful, I think, in making a reality in many ways of of a white man's West. Uh, To get us into that, I wonder if you'd read uh, page three. This is the beginning of the book here. Sure. Oh, right. Um, yeah, so I lead off, uh, I compare two two interesting guys that are actually very different, but yet at the same time are both sort of articulating this view of the West. And the, the first one is uh, Charles Fletcher Lummis. Um, he went West in 1885 to get a job at the Los Angeles Times and really became a kind of... Uh, promoter, defender of the West, uh, and actually a real fan and supporter of, uh, of uh, Hispanic and Native American culture, too. And, uh, and one of the things he was addressing was this perception of the West as backward as a frontier versus the East. And so, uh, so I lead off here uh, with a quote from, uh, from Lummis, and he says, uh, In Los Angeles, the pugnacious editor Charles Fletcher Lummis declared, uh, quote, Our foreign element is a few thousand industrious Chinamen and perhaps 500 native Californians who do not speak English. The ignorant, hopelessly un-American type of foreigners which infests and largely controls eastern cities is almost unknown here. Poverty and illiteracy do not exist as classes, end quote. And so I go on. Uh, California in the West, Lemus argued, offered Americans a chance to create a perfect society. A last chance. Uh, Lummis's utopian vision of the West imagines small, orderly cities, productive mines and farms, and a population dominated by Anglo-Americans with enough Hispanic, American Indian, and Asian elements to be exotic. At the same time, Eastern residents, old stock Americans like Lummis himself, feared losing control of Eastern cities to Southern and Eastern European immigrants who, unlike Asians and most Indian peoples, could vote and therefore wield power. Lummis intentionally used the term infestation to link these immigrants to vermin. Thankfully, he believed the threat of un-American immigrants existed back east and far from his bucolic land of sunshine, the title, incidentally, of the magazine he edited. So that, uh, it's, <laughs> it's pretty strong, pretty strong. And this, this from a fellow who, I guess, advocated rights of minorities. I guess, yeah. Indication yeah. of how pervasive this thought was. Yeah, it was, and 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 he in particular, and and other guys like him, really wanted to kind of say, this is what makes the West better than the East. You know, we've got this little layer of exoticism. You'll still see Indians and Hispanics, and and in California, you know, Chinatown, and you know, which of course even in the 1800s was a popular tourist destination. And but all of that is just sort of local color. That the, the, those people because of the way the laws are at the time, are largely disenfranchised. And Hispanic peoples could vote, but had kind of, in everywhere except New Mexico, had sort of been pushed to the side. Native Americans, uh, for the most part, aren't voting, and Asians are barred not only from voting, but also from citizenship uh, under the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and a few other things like that. And so they, they juxtapose that, you know, this, this kind of interesting milieu, I guess, of these, you know, ethnic uh, or, you know, different racial groups with the clear case that power is in the hands of people like Lummis himself, you know, and then they compare that to the East and say, well, you know, what's happening in the East is you have all these immigrants coming in from all these different places, and there maybe we consider them sort of different ethnic groups, but under the law they can vote, 
and they're kind of the basis of those political machines, you know, like the famous Tammany Hall and some of those machines that are kind of controlling local politics, apparently, or at least supposedly to the detriment of, you know, good old, you know, red-blooded Anglo-Americans who can trace their ancestry back to the Mayflower or whatever. And so guys like Lummis are really saying, you know, this is what makes the West a better place than than back East. How widespread was this uh, this feeling, and, and how how linked to to, to the, the idea of manifest destiny was this? A, was a very well, common view. That's a that's a great question. You know, it's uh, it's hard to say. Of course, we, you know, we don't have polling data or things like that, but we, it does turn up enough um, uh, that you can kind of get a sense that it must have been one of those ideas that was out there. Um, when I talk about uh, uh, the uh, the development of Colorado Springs and uh, and the guy who's uh, kind of the uh, the brains behind that um, is uh, is this guy uh, William let's see whoop, let me find it here uh, well where is let's see uh, where did I lost oh gosh I just totally blanked on his name Jackson Jackson where is he uh, well uh, darn it where do you go anyway uh, <laughs> the uh, the guy who's kind of the brainchild of of settling Colorado Springs is uh, He's writing back to his fiance, and he's talking about how great uh, oh, Palmer, uh, General Palmer. I'm sorry, totally lost it there. Uh, and so he's writing back to his fiance, saying, you know, wouldn't it be fantastic, uh, William Jackson Palmer? So he's writing back and saying, wouldn't it be fantastic if if we could just go out west and sort of create a little railroad just for ourselves and our friends, and we could invite only like the right kind of people to come out there, you know, and he's, you know, and he's writing to his fiance because her mom is worried, um, it's the 1870s, and she's worried, you know, is it dangerous in Colorado? Are we going to get killed by Indians if we move there? And he's basically saying, Colorado's not the real frontier. The frontier is New York and in Boston and all these places where these these unsavory immigrants are moving in and taking over. You know, if we come out west, it, it'll be this perfect utopian society. We can just build this, you know, this perfect little thing for ourselves and be firmly in control. And it'll, you know, it's uh, and, and so on. So, uh, so the idea is definitely out there. It's hard to say, um, you know, how common it is now. Manifest destiny is absolutely um, has an, it built into it this idea of white superiority, that this is, you know, divinely ordained that we're going to sweep across the continent and kind of wipe out or, or at least, you know, sort of relegate the, the lesser peoples to kind of a subservient status. And, you know, Teddy Roosevelt uh, in his you know, history, Winning the West, has this great passage where he talks about these, you know, red-blooded Anglo-Americans going out and replacing the lazy Hispanics and the lazy Frenchmen and the savage Indians and, you know, and building this this perfect world, you know. Uh, and so it's definitely an idea that I think is out there. Let's take a break. When we come back, I'll have you uh, read another passage. This will be at uh, top of page five. And another uh, interesting uh, person with, with, with some of these ideas. We're talking uh, with Jason Pierce, who's author of the new book, Making the White Man's West, Whiteness and the Creation of the American West. In the next segment, we'll get into very obvious applications of the, this history, extensions of this history to today. Uh, Jason Pierce wrote a very interesting article uh, talking about uh, some of the latest developments in the West. You can find that at uh, University Press of Colorado website. Uh, mentioned the standoff, recent standoff in Oregon, for example. This has obvious uh, parallels to immigration, the immigration debate of today as well. More following the break. In our Utah Public Radio community calendar, the Utah Foundation is holding a public presentation on the USU campus Tuesday to discuss findings of their recent Utah Priorities Project. They'll look at how different groups in Utah and candidates for governor and state party convention delegates are viewing Utah political issues. That's Tuesday at 3 p.m. in room 202 of the USU Logan Distance Education Building. Also, Utah State University Presidential Search Committee is holding a public meeting in Price beginning at 3.30 on Tuesday with a um, public open house and presentation at 7 o'clock also at the Price campus at the Jennifer Levitt Student Center. This will be broadcast to the Moab Utah uh, USU campus and the Blanding Utah USU campus. Details about these events found at our website by going to upr.org. K-pop stars are products of fantasy world. 
On the next Radio Lab, we enter the multi-billion dollar image machine that is K-pop. The girl next door, all cute and, you know, like the ideal girlfriend kind of idea. It's a prison you decide to walk into. Join us for the next Radio Lab. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We're talking with Jason Pierce, Associate Professor of History at Angelo State University in San Angelo, Texas. He's out with a new book published by University Press of Colorado. It's called Making the White Man's West. And we're reviewing this history. We're going to bring it forward to a discussion of today's issues and recent events like immigration, the standoff in uh, Oregon. Uh, Jason uh, Pierce uh, says that uh, there were two visions of the West. Uh, First as a racially diverse holding cell, and then as a white refuge. These uh, shaped the history of the region, influenced a variety of contemporary and social issues of, uh, of the day. Uh, Jason Pierce, let me have you read this. Uh, I guess the bottom of page four and then the, the first paragraph, page five. Okay, yeah. So uh, and this uh, this passage is about uh, a small-town parade. It's actually in the uh, the town I live in now in, in West Texas. Uh, and actually, my graduate student found this quote and has showed it to me. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like the quote I've been looking for for years. But uh, So it's uh, this, this setting here is a Settler's Day Parade uh, in the town of San Angelo in 1910. Um, and this is, you know, kind of the twilight of the heroic age for, uh, for uh, you know, Texans, those, those great heroes of, you know, of, uh, of Texas and uh, of the Civil War and the Indian Wars are kind of passing. Uh, and so they're having this parade to kind of celebrate this. And it's your typical small town parade. You know, you've got ranchers and cowboys and, you know, school kids and marching in it and the KKK, which is, of course, was a big at that time, too. But standing off to the sideline then is this uh, this old guy who is a uh, um, uh, named John W. Long, and so I'll, I'll pick up there. So, too infirm to participate in the parade, another pioneer, John W. Long, stood off to the side watching the, per, the procession. The reporter for the San Angelo Standard Times observed, few of the multitudes who witnessed Monday's parade of old-timers were cognizant of the fact, fact that there stood in their midst one of the fathers of Texas. Long claimed to, assert, to, to have served as a Texas Ranger under Sol Ross at the 1860 Battle of Pease River, the attack in which Cynthia Ann Parker, the white woman who was the mother of the Comanche leader Quanta Parker, was redeemed from a life among the Comanches, an event whose importance to Texas was surpassed only in magnitude by the Alamo in the Civil War. Scarcely a year later, Long, like many young Texans, found himself fighting for the Confederacy. Reflecting on his career, Long told the journalist, quote, I fought for years with the rangers and pioneers to make this a white man's country and fought four years to keep the Negro from being as good as the white man. In the first, I won out. In the second, I lost. But I glory in the knowledge that West Texas will always be what we fought for and what the Lord intended it to be a white man's country. And so, you know, uh, here you have this clear expression, right, of this idea that this is, was supposed to be a, a region really for white men like Long himself. And actually, he used the other N-word in the, the quote, but <laughs> I didn't think I should probably use that on the radio. Yeah, but, I, I appreciate uh, you, you uh, changing that. Here, there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, again, it's it's pretty strong. It, I mean, it strikes our ears as, as pretty hard. Um but that was the the feeling among at least some of some of the people. Um, I wonder if we could backtrack a little bit before it became white man's country. Some advocated as as the West as a dumping ground. Uh, tell me about that. Right. Yeah. So we've kind of, or at least you know, I've kind of a lot of us I think have come to think of the West as sort of this ideally suited place for whites and so on. And uh, but originally. They had a very different opinion of of what this land would be good for. You know, after we acquire the Louisiana Purchase, um, there's a you know they send out various expeditions to kind of check this this place out. Lewis and Clark are of course are the most famous, but not too long after Lewis and Clark, uh, you have uh, Zebulon Pike going out, kind of wandering around the Arkansas River up into into southern Colorado, uh, and then a little bit later, uh, about another decade after that, you have a uh, Stephen uh, Harum and Long. Of the you know, of Long's Peak fame up in uh, in Colorado, uh, and both of these guys, when they get back, have 
these this report that uh, what uh, that the West is just terrible. That uh, there are just miles and miles of sand dunes. That it's it's like uh, you know the Arabian deserts. That no good could possibly come from settling the West out there. Uh, and and they famously call it the Great American Desert. You know that this is big empty section in the middle of the country. And so this is kind of disappointing to guys like Thomas Jefferson, you know, who are hoping that the, that this is the next part of, a, of American frontier expansion. And these reports are pretty negative. Um, well, what they, uh, one of the ideas then put forth uh, uh, to, to deal with all of this is to then use this as sort of like an American Siberia, as a place that you can dump everybody that doesn't fit in into the United States. And in particular, there are two real incongruous groups at the time. There are uh, Native Americans and there are free African Americans. And so long before the Civil War, you have a, a growing population of, uh, of African Americans who are not enslaved who, uh, for various reasons, including service in the Revolutionary War, had gotten their freedom. And these two groups don't really fit in. It's not clear how they're supposed to, you know, for example, are free African Americans allowed to vote? Well, the answer's been no, but they're allowed to hold jobs and start businesses and families. And especially for white slaveholders, they're a real symbol of possibility to African-American slaves. And so they're, uh, they're going to try to get rid of these people and move them, and moving them to the West seems like a real uh, good idea, you know, that you could send them out to the frontier, they could settle, they could establish towns. There's some talk of an entire uh, African-American state out there. Uh, and so that's one group. And then the other group, of course, are Eastern Native Americans who are basically seen as in the way of American expansion. Uh, and so we can also move them. Well, what's interesting is the uh, the idea of moving all these African-Americans never really gets off the ground. But Indian removal does. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot in the in the press lately about uh, Andrew Jackson and taking Andrew Jackson off the twenty dollar bill, in part because uh, he's the guy that really instigates removal policy, where he they're moving groups like the Cherokees and the Choctaws and a whole bunch of other Eastern tribes and taking them and relocating them to Oklahoma. Now. Supposedly, this was for humanitarian reasons, but really it was a way to kind of get rid of this incongruous segment of the population. Um, but after the, the idea of moving African Americans never really gets going, although there is later in the 1830s a movement to send uh, some of these free black people back to Africa, and that actually leads to the founding of the nation of Liberia. But So the point is, I guess, that we didn't conceive of the West initially as this great place to go, that in fact it was a, a place of, of aridity, a place where farming probably wouldn't work. And there was a real fear that if you went and settled in a place like Santa Fe, let's say, that whites could become just as lazy as Hispanic peoples were supposedly. So this, in other words, it was better to just leave this place alone. But that changed, of course. The, the, it became seen as desirable. Uh, so tell me what uh, tell me this uh, the, what was the ideal what was the myth that that uh, quote unquote white people real white people real Americans quote unquote have to make sure I put the quotes around them because it's right. you know it's, 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 these are f- offensive uh, ideas um, could be alone right could be pure could be what, what was the ideal well the what really begins to change all of this uh, of course is the uh, the California gold rush and so instead of all that stuff being sort of way out beyond the pales, you know, uh, suddenly the West is squarely in the center of a, uh, of a continental nation, and, you know, and you get hundreds of thousands of people heading to California in the first two years of the gold rush, and suddenly everything that was out there is now on the inside. Uh, and, and so that begins this process. As, as settlers start to go out there, the, 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 um, the attitudes start to change a little bit. Uh, and in terms of this idea of racial degeneration, which is really one of the big concerns, um, there's a new scientific theory that comes out just around the 1840s, just as we're starting to, to manifest all this, you know, our destiny and all that stuff. There's this new political theory, or scientific theory, rather, is called polygenesis. And there are a lot of big-name scientists, Louis Agassiz, who's probably the most famous scientist in America at the time, uh, Josiah Knott, who was a Southern doctor, and he wrote a lot on race, uh, Joseph uh, or George Glidden, uh, a bunch of these different guys. Uh, and, and what they're saying is um, 
it's kind of interesting. In some ways, they're 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 basically arguing that whites were created separately. That the Book of Genesis was basically the idea of white creation. That there were other, you know, origins for other different groups, and so that um, we could then go to climates that were unfamiliar to us, like the American West and still maintain our racial superiority, that we were kind of hardwired to be conquerors and that, you know, all of the nice weather in the world wouldn't, you know, make us lazy like Hispanic peoples were supposed to be. And so with this idea, we can kind of start going out west and feeling like uh, it's okay. Uh, and then what will happen over time is then you get this uh, settlements they're developing and things like that. Then you can start to do what Lummis and some of those guys are doing, and it's compare the society of the West to the society of the East, and say that the West compares favorably because you know we we're solid Anglo-Americans, you know, are, are in charge of things out there. So there's a there's a real interesting transformation in how that the region is viewed over time. I want to loop back to the history, but I want to bring in the current reverberations of these ideas, and there are many parallels. Uh, maybe starting with, and you treat this in your preface, you say the region's wide-open spaces, attitudes toward privacy, and supposed status as white man's country attracted extremist groups like the Aryan Nations. You can see how, I don't know whether, you know, Aryan Nations and thinking about uh, locating in northern Idaho would have known any of the history, but but some of the same thought process might have been happening there. Yes, absolutely. I, I think I think that's really true. That, and really, all you need to do is kind of look at a map of population, and you can see that even to this day, the Intermountain West is still uh, really dominated by uh, non-Hispanic whites. It's, Parts of the West are changing a lot. California, uh, Texas, places like that. Uh, you know, neither of those have a white, my, uh, a non-Hispanic white majority anymore. But certainly, Idaho, the Dakotas, Montana, those places uh, really do. And uh, and I do quote uh, Richard Butler, the founder of the Aryan Nations, um, who's talking about moving up. You know, he famously moves up to Hayden Lake and kind of sets up his his compound. You know, and he he envisions the Northwest, because it already is dominated by whites, to, to become a kind of homeland, uh, what he calls the Northwest Territorial Imperative, that eventually that those states would become a kind of, um, you know, homeland for, for whites, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, Montana, uh, in particular. Uh, and he uses a, there's a, a quote I have in there, where he sounds almost just like the, the polygenesis of a of hundred years earlier, and he says, Aryans are Nordic in their blood. North Idaho is a natural place for the white man to live. So he's going back to these kind of racial arguments that this cold kind of climate is sort of ideally suited to this rugged, rugged Anglo-Saxons, you know, uh, of yesteryear. And, um, and, and that idea is kind of out there. Uh, it, it, polygenesis sort of says, but, you know, we're strong enough that we can also settle anywhere we want to go. But that that's the kind of homeland, the snowy northern climates, you know, and all that stuff. So. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk a little bit about immigration. As you were reading that passage from uh, Charles Lummis, um, he uses the word infestation, and I, I think he uses that word purposefully. That's not too far away from you know what you hear sometimes in the immigration debate today. Yeah, uh, I think that's true. Um, you know, there are some periods in American history where uh, immigrants in particular are kind of singled out for being the problem. You know, uh, the Know Nothing movement in the 1850s is very much that way. Uh, there's a, a real fear of Chinese immigration in the 1870s, 1880s, which culminates with the, the Chinese Exclusion Act. And that was the first time in American history that really we had told a group we don't want you here. And that had imposed a ban on Chinese immigration. Uh, really, the, the driver of that was, was California, which was seeing the, the most of this, this influx. Uh, and then you get another great period in the 1910s, 1920s, um, guys like uh, there's guys like Madison Grant and people like that who are using uh, racial science and eugenics to to argue that we need to keep these these groups out. Um, and Lummis is kind of uh, kind of in that uh, area. He's he's a little bit less straightforward than say. Uh, um, some of the other guys. One of the, the people I talk a lot about in the book is a really interesting guy named Frank Bird Linderman, who lives in Montana. 
And Linderman uh, is a real fan of Native American culture. He uh, he helped uh, several tribes establish reservations for themselves. He also uh, you know uh, recorded some really uh, good interviews with Native peoples. Uh, he, he wrote some biographies that are still widely read about. Uh, uh, some uh, Native American elders and things. At the same time, he is extremely anti-immigrant because he sees Amer- American Indians as Americans, but he doesn't see these immigrants as Americans. And so he's a strong, strongly against uh, you know immigration and letting immigrants in. And so the and all of that culminates in the 1920s with the uh, the 1924 Immigration Act. Which sets up race and ethnicity-based quotas to uh, to basically ex- to decide who gets to come into the United States, and so Northern Europeans uh, basically get a green light to immigrate into the United States. Uh, Southern and Eastern Europeans, there are quotas set to allow fewer of those people to come in, and then if you're not European at all, you don't get to come in. So Asians, Africans, those people are completely. Uh, kind of frozen out, and so uh, one scholar has said that this amounted to a kind of uh, of racial engineering to kind of determine the the characteristics of the American population, and so so a kind of virulent anti-immigration does seem to to pop up uh, every now and then, uh, in part um, you know because of uh, a reflection of the fears of, of people uh, at the time. So uh, do, do you... there must be some of that going on today as yeah. well. Right. Right. Uh, so, uh, if you just joined us, by the way, we're talking with Jason Pierce. Uh, his book is Making the White Man's West, Whiteness and the Creation of the American West. Uh, phone lines are open, 1-800-826-1495. Love to get your take on, on this, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can uh, join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, so, how how do you connect up... Or do you the, the, this this myth, this idea of the white man's West with uh, Arizona's immigration bill, uh, 1070, or Mr. Trump's proposed wall? I think it's still there. You know, I think it's maybe not as obvious, and maybe it's not even the top cause, but I, I think that's still there. You know, that there's, as I think a lot of people would agree, there's definitely a profound sense of uncertainty, of fear in. The, uh, the electorate right now um, that, you know, that's why I think one of the things Trump understands really well is is that fear. I think he understands it better than some of the more mainstream Republican candidates, that there's a there's a sense for a lot of people that the way things were 50 or 100 years ago is is gone. And, and, and a lot of people and a lot of, I think, middle, you know, kind of middle and lower class whites kind of feel like they've sort of been left behind, you know, that uh, on the one hand, you have social programs which seem to favor, uh, you know, minority uh, groups, uh, and then you have these economic changes that uh, don't seem to be benefiting them. And so I think there's this kind of searching around for an answer. And and not surprisingly, Trump's rhetoric is the kind of rhetoric that you, you see in immigration movements where it's easy to find and sort of uh, demonize a target, whether it's you know, Hispanics uh, or Muslims or, or whatever. So I, I do think there's there's something there, you know, and, and that there are these problems, maybe economic problems, social problems that maybe we haven't uh, talked about well enough in this country or, or, or done en- enough about. Because um, I do think there there are some legitimate concerns that, um, you know, if you're living in a, a town where, you know, it used to be uh, the logging industry was prevalent and that's gone, you know, it's easy to blame uh, the government, the federal government, environmental, you know, regulations and things like that. And so I think this idea that the white man, of the white man's West and the, the fact that it seems to be diminishing like a lot of things are – yeah, I think it's out there. I think it's maybe kind of under the surface, but I do think it's uh, it's it's out there. Let's take another break. When we come back, uh, I want to make reference to a very interesting piece, uh, Jason Pierce, that you wrote uh, that's uh, for uh, University Press of Colorado, bringing some of these um, ideas forward to today. You, you talk about a siege mentality. That's, I mean, you referenced the occupation of the Malheur um, National Wildlife Refuge. Um I uh, want to talk about that when we come back. And uh, also, uh, we're here in Utah. We'd, we don't want to neglect your uh, chapter on the LDS Church and how that plays into, into these ideas more following the break. 
This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Westfield, Massachusetts is known as Whip City because 120 years ago, 40 companies made buggy whips, tools, and carriage parts. Today, only Westfield whip manufacturing remains. Harvard Business School professor Theodore Levitt gave sound advice to businesses facing change. Back in 1960, he said businesses should concentrate on their customers' needs, not on specific products. If buggy whip makers had thought of their businesses as transportation accessories, they might have survived into the automobile era. There were 13,000 businesses in wagon and carriage parts in 1890. Today, less than 1% of those businesses still exist. But that 1% exists because they listen to their customers. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Jason Pierce. He's Associate Professor of History at Angelo State University in San Angelo, Texas. His new book out from University Press of Colorado is called Making the White Man's West. The West, especially the mountain states, ranks among the widest places in America today. But this fact obscures the more complicated history of racial diversity in the region. And in his book, Jason Pierce argues that uh, since the time of the Louisiana Purchase, the American West has been a racially contested space. We're going to review some more of the history, but right now we're bringing uh, this, these ideas forward to today. Uh, Jason Pierce, you wrote a very interesting piece uh, for University Press of Colorado. Um, and, and you say it's been a strange year, referring to, I guess, last year to this year, widespread paranoia about Jade Helm. Um, right. In Texas, that was the military exercise, right? Right. That some some Texans uh, thought the the federal government was going to take over uh, occupation of the Malheur uh, National Wildlife Refuge refuge by armed militants. And then you mentioned uh, Mr. Trump's uh, unrealistic plan. You would characterize it <laughs> to build a wall across uh, along the border. You connect this up with uh, some people, I guess. In this case, whites, I would imagine, are feeling a siege mentality. And you could explain that. Well, yeah, I think, uh, kind of going back to what we were saying before the break, I think there is a sense that um, people have been left behind. You know, that the, the changes in the global economy, the, the place for the West, you know, has really, it's really changed. If you go back, you know, 50, 100 years ago, the West had a very clear place in the uh, the economy of the United States. The West was about resource extraction. Uh, you know, if you're in the Pacific Northwest, it was the lumber industry. If you're in the Intermountain West, you know, uh, it was uh, it was mining. You know, I have the huge uh, copper pit, you know, just outside of Salt Lake City uh, and similar things in Montana and Colorado. And so the West knew its place. It knew what it was supposed to do. And, and people had pretty comfortable livings in ranching, mining, things like that. Uh, and then all of that begins to change. Uh, it be, you know, the 70s, the 80s, um, there are changes from um, global economics, competition from other regions. Uh, it really hurt uh, industries like the logging industry in the Pacific Northwest. You know, they're facing competition from places like Siberia, places like uh, Canada. And so it's hurting. You're seeing mill closures and things like that. Um, and, uh, and then the environmental legislation is uh, a factor as well. And you have things like the spotted owl controversy of the 1990s where they were, you know, the government was, uh, was not allowing logging companies to go in and extract resources. Well, all of this kind of throws the West and the Western economy economy into into chaos uh, and the the target often is the federal government and federal policy uh, and so people are trying to explain you know where did my job go well the government's responsible for it and uh, and then lately this is kind of seems to have been kind of ratcheted up into this uh, this real profound fear uh, of the of the government and government takeover and things like that, and I got to you know witness uh, this firsthand here in Texas. 
Jade Helm was all over. You know, I was in Utah, I was in Arizona, but it was only in Texas where this military exercise really got blown kind of out of proportion. Uh, there were rumors circulating that, uh, you know, the government was going to microchip people, and there were abandoned Walmarts in this area that were, for some reason, going to become like concentration camps, you know, and and, and uh, the, there was an ice cream recall of a big popular ice cream here, Bluebell, and that's just like a huge, the number one ice cream in Texas, and uh, and that fed into the controversy. Supposedly, the ice cream trucks were going to be to move bodies around, and so there was this just kind of profound, you know, crazy conspiracy theory, and um, and I think it goes back to, to some of these these issues of uh, of people feeling very uncertain about their place in society, their place in the economy, and really what the future holds. Um, and so I think that's kind of what's going on uh, in the West. Yeah, a lot of a lot of factors here. Uh, Utah has, has jumped on the bandwagon. The legislature is authorized, uh, you know, uh, suing the federal government to, to take back federal lands. Um, but right. how much of this do you think is race? Is it just one of the factors? Is it how how big a factor is it? I would say it's a factor. Um, uh, I wouldn't say it's probably the principal factor. It seems to me like the economic side and the 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 presence of the federal government is probably what's the the biggest motivators. But I think race is still out there, uh, especially. Uh, you know, immigration and Hispanic people coming in and, you know, taking people's jobs, supposedly, and, you know, and uh, and the idea of them living off of government services, you know, that they, they you know, can take their kids to hospitals and their, the various things that I think there's a sense uh, for at least some rural, uh, mostly whites, that this is unfair, that they're kind of taking advantage of the system, that they're taxpayers, but these immigrants aren't taxpayers, and they're coming in and, you know, mooching off the system and, you know, and manipulating the laws, you know, having children so that the children become citizens. And uh, and then again, and so that's where, you know, where Trump's wall comes in. You know, it's this, again, it's a kind of uh, really sort of simple solution to a complicated problem, and that is, well, let's just build a, you know, a gigantic wall between the United States and Mexico, even though that's not only impossible in terms of money, I mean, it would be tremendously expensive, but it would also mean that the United States cuts off uh, its number one trade partner, which would be, you know, kind of uh, economic suicide in some ways, I would think. But mm. uh, and, and it's interesting, in Texas, that argument, you know, Texans, I think, living bordered with Mexico, don't seem to be terribly enthusiastic about Trump's wall. I think there's a sense here that these connections are too important to, to lead to the, the construction of such a gigantic uh, thing. And it didn't work. I mean, the Great Walls, they've tried them for a couple thousand years, and they never seem to work that well. So. <laughs> yeah, there's a history there, isn't there? Um, yeah. <laughs> if you just joined us, we're talking with Jason Pierce. His book is Making the White Man's West. Uh, that The phone number is 1-800-826-1495. Love to know what you think. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And Peter has emailed us. Uh, his first question is, is your guest related to historian Joseph Pierce? And I'm guessing not because I have the benefit of uh, of the spelling in front of me. Joseph Pierce is E-A and you are I-E. Yep. Nope. No, no relation. No, no relation. Okay. Uh, Peter goes on uh, to say, Teddy Roosevelt's manifest destiny comprises white racial and religious supremacy to justify and promote violence against perceived lesser persons, Indians, and others assigned non-person status. President Wilson was the first to proclaim America's duty to spread so-called American democracy around the globe, firmly promising improved quality of life for all persons around the globe. Uh, he asks, does your guest see any similarities, both in the self-centered hypocrisy and death and destruction it has caused around the globe? That's a, that's a good question, Peter. Um, I think uh, they're very much related. You, you, the, the period of imperial expansion, which is roughly the period where, you know, Teddy Roosevelt is a big public figure, um, there's a widespread belief, not just in the United States, but really around uh, Europe, that uh, it's the you know it's the so-called white man's burden. It's our duty to expand around the world. And of course, we can wrap all this stuff in you know in the uh, you know clothing of humanitarianism. That it's our duty to spread civilization and religion and all of these things to uh, 
you know, the lesser peoples of the world. And that's really one of the, the, the motivating factors for imperialism. Of course, there's also economics and taking and controlling resources all over the world. But, you know, in Teddy Roosevelt's writing about, you know, some of those sorts of things, this is the same time that the, the British and the Germans and all these other imperial groups are doing the same sort of thing around the world. And so I think they, I think Manifest Destiny is a kind of, it's like an American form of imperialism. It's an internal imperialism, but it's you know, it's absolutely uh, in line with the imperialism going on in, in other places at roughly the same time. Thanks for that uh, question, uh, Peter. And uh, you uh, can reach us here. We have another five minutes left at 1-800-826-1495, toll-free number, or upraxcess at gmail.com. Well, we, uh, you do have a chapter on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and uh, policy excluding uh, blacks from holding the uh, priesthood. Uh, how, did, how do you fit this in? How does this fit into uh, this concept of, of whiteness in the American West? Well, I think the the chapter on the Mormons uh, and the Mormon Church, interestingly, kind of shows a lot of these things in action. Uh, as I'm sure a lot of uh, your listeners know, until 1978, the Mormon Church didn't allow in uh, African American men, you know, to serve in the priesthood uh, and things like that. Um, and that had gone back to an old belief that predates the Mormons by centuries, and that is this idea of the mark of Cain, that black people were descended from Cain and therefore carried with them that that taint of sin of having you know, committed the first murder. Uh, but Mormons aren't uh, unusual in that belief. Uh, that's a widespread belief in the United States uh, at the time, that, that blacks are kind of this lesser status has been put on them because they bear the, the mark of Cain. Um, but at the same time, the chapter on Mormons, I think, also shows that that racism isn't always the underlying motive or factor behind uh, the, how the West becomes so dominated by whites. Uh, the Mormon Church tries very hard um, to reach out to a wide variety of people, uh, and with kind of interesting results. Uh, they had a great deal of success in Northern Europe, in areas where Protestantism had taken hold. But they do try to move into the Catholic world. Uh, guys like Lorenzo Snow, they would set up a mission to go into Italy to try to convert Italians, and they just have no luck. I mean, they try, they spend a lot of time, a lot of money, and uh, the converts they get are just, uh, there's, you know, just a few dozen. Um, and so what happens there is not, uh, you know, it's not a racial issue as much as it's a sort of cultural linguistic issue. I mean, the Mormons would have been happy if they could have brought in converts from Italy and Southern Europe. They, the people in those areas just were indifferent to the message of of the Mormon church. And then at the same time, while they're struggling to do that, out of left field almost literally comes uh, all these Pacific Islanders who start converting in very large numbers. Uh, and then that forces uh, the Mormon church to kind of extend, expand their definition uh, of the Lamanites, the this key group of people who are going to help create this the new Zion, you know, uh, in Utah. And so they they say, well, okay, these guys must be Lamanites as well. And so, uh, uh, great, we'll uh, we'll start proselytizing to those people. But though, for the most part, the Pacific Islanders don't make it, to, don't come to Utah because it's just so far that it's easier to send missionaries to them rather than bring them back to Utah. So you have this group of believers out there in the Pacific Islanders, and then you have Northern Europeans coming in uh, to Utah more specifically, and that kind of creates the the dynamics uh, of the uh, of the of the Mormon Church. But uh, I did do some research at BYU, and I was struck by how much more racially diverse BYU is than the than Utah as a whole. You know, when you're strolling around the campus, you see lots of, uh, of Africans, lots of Central American peoples. And that really shows, I think, the direction where the church is heading now, is reaching out into those, those groups out there. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think that chapter really shows that racism isn't really always the motive factor here, that sometimes it's just the way things worked out. And we just have 30 seconds left. Just a parting shot from your preface. I found this interesting, uh, being here in Utah. Uh, you you note that on the LDS Church's website, they're frequently asked questions. They uh, make sure to point out that uh, these days there are no race or color restrictions as to who can join the church or who can have the priesthood. Um, but you go on to say, perhaps the final arbiter of relevance, Google's search engine ranks, are all Mormons white, behind only are all Mormons rich? and ahead of polygamists and Republicans. You go on to say, despite their best efforts, therefore Mormons still have some work to do addressing the past, least perceptions. So that's uh, 
I found that very interesting. We are out of time. Uh, Jason Pierce, very interesting book, Making the White Man's West, out from University Press of Colorado. Jason Pierce is Associate Professor of History at Angelo State University in San Angelo, Texas. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Tom. It's been fun. And uh, be sure and join us uh, tomorrow, of course, for the program. Thanks for listening today. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about the predecessors of light rail in Utah. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. At the height of the railroad age, Utah was crisscrossed with rail lines. Many of these were established to haul freight, but most of them also provided passenger service. In the more densely populated areas from Provo to Logan, electric interurban rail lines carried students to school, workers to their jobs, and shoppers to areas of commerce. Simon Bamberger was one of the best-known railroad owners in Utah. He started his Great Salt Lake and Hot Springs Railway, popularly known as the Bamberger Line, in 1890, and then continued to build northward. At Farmington, he drained a swamp and developed the Lagoon Amusement Park to compete with the Rio Grande Railroad's Lake Park on the shores of the Great Salt Lake. With the economic boost that Lagoon gave to Bamberger's Railroad, the company built rails to Ogden by 1908 and ran five trains a day in each direction. The Bamberger Line provided the only rail access to Hill Air Force Base during the 1940s. The A.J. Orem Company built a rail line in 1913 that served commuters between Provo and Salt Lake City, other small railroads provided freight and passenger service to communities all over the state, including American Fork, Tooele, Tintic, Cedar City, and more. The San Pete Valley Railway was established to serve coal mines in rural areas. During the 1880s, when polygamists were being chased by federal authorities, the San Pete train signaled townspeople with coded whistle blasts to alert them that marshals were on board the train. This gave polygamists time to disappear into their hiding places, and few arrests were made. The train earned the nickname the Polygamous Central. So what happened to Utah's interurban lines? With more Utahs buying cars, especially after World War II, and with competition from buses that had greater route flexibility, most of the passenger rail lines in Utah were out of business by the early 1950s. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Elaine Thatcher. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Our election road trip continues in Pennsylvania, where Democratic Governor Tom Wolf imagines working with a President Trump. I mean, you have to work with whoever the president is, but he does not seem to have the the uh, type of personality that, that, that makes it easy for anybody to work with him. We'll broadcast from Pittsburgh. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio.